Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 53. I'm your host, Dill, and this week we have our first return guest in the form of music writer and author Drew Fortune. Drew was on the show last June and at the time talked about his in-progress book that talked to musicians about their most infamous gigs. Well, that book, called No Encore, Musicians Reveal Their Weirdest, Wildest, Most Embarrassing Gigs, is now available for pre-order and will be out for consumption July 16th. In it are hilarious, sometimes horrifying recollections from a who's who in music, including Alice Cooper, Dave Navarro, Peter Frampton, Debbie Gibson, Sammy Hagar, Shirley Manson, and dozens of others. I met up with Drew a couple weeks back, and our conversation about writing love notes to Fiona Apple by spraying blood from a heroin syringe went a little something like this. about our first time around but now it's it's finally almost a, a tangible thing that we can hold in our hands and correct me if i'm wrong it's called no encore musicians reveal their weirdest wildest most embarrassing gigs that's it correct yeah that's my baby okay now if i were to treat you like a musician i want to know a little bit about like the machinery around it like how long has this been how long have you been doing this now is this taking like three or four years to put together well, it first started, um, originally I was going to call it Rain or Shine, and it was going to be the best gigs and the worst gigs. Okay. Um, so I did a few, um, Dean Ween, the guitarist for Ween, was the first, and he wrote his own, but it was all bad. It was one bad night. Right, right. So that was really funny. Um, but then I, I kept trying to get good ones, um, and they were they all just kind of ran together. I mean, no offense to the artists, um, it was sort of like, well, my family, family was there. It was really special. I had just gotten engaged really sweet, right? but not the reason you watch Motley Crue behind the music 20 times. <laughs> it's funny. Art, <coughs> art has so much to do with revealing pain and, and angst. Mm -hmm. You know, they probably, probably have a hard time going to a happy place. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing that really is sad about this to me, um, a good friend of mine, uh, the lead singer of the band Frightened Rabbit, uh, Scott Hutchinson, took his own life um, last year. But he was the second person who did an interview with me for the book. Um, and I didn't include it because we, I was still on that best worst kick. And right. we talked a lot about him trying to get sober and his demons. And look, rest in peace, Scott. He was he's a – I don't want to share too much about him now that he's gone, but – he was just the sweetest, kindest, uh, most down-to-earth dude mm -hmm. I probably ever met in the business. Um, so I just kind of wanted to leave that to him, right. um, what he shared with me. And I didn't really feel it was appropriate to include in the book. Yeah. But uh, So, yeah, I kind of bounced around trying to um, get that rain or shine idea going. Um, kind of hit reset for a little bit. And... Um, but yeah, once I started in earnest, um, I really reached out to a lot of my friends right off the bat, or at least, you know, quote unquote, industry friends that I knew right. um, to share chapters. And once once it started going, I mean, that was about yeah, about a year and a half ago. When were you pitching it to a publisher? Were you were you trying to get whatever a half dozen, ten of these, and then say, hey, look. You know, look at the prospect here. Or, yeah. Or did you get someone on board right away? Um, I mean, it was it was real crucial to get an agent first. Um, 
that's one thing that I've learned in this whole process as it's my first book. Mm -hmm. And I got a great one, um, <clears throat> but I had really had to court him. Did you have one for your writing assignments? No. At all? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, uh, you know, I think I sent him six along, six sample chapters along with the proposal. And, I, and he turned me down. He just said, you know, shape it up a bit more, get some stronger chapters. Um, so once he came on board, his name's David, uh, we reached out to about 15 um, publishers. Uh, yeah, and at that point I had about 10 chapters mm -hmm. that I was pretty happy with, some of the bigger names. Um, I think I got 14 rejections <laughs> and one bite. Hey, that's all it takes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and... Uh, that's kind of where we are today. But the interesting thing was uh, I never knew who would be interested in doing this because once I exhausted my friends or publicists who would just kindly give me an artist, I mean, I was just I was just flying blind. Right. I was hitting up everybody. Barry Manilow, um, Tom Jones, I mean, Brian May, anyone who yeah, yeah. I thought Dolly, Dolly Parton. Well, the diversity is what's great about it. Yeah, I think you, so. Because you did end, correct me if I'm wrong, you did end up with Debbie Gibson, right? Yep. She made it? Sure. Yeah. Is there anybody who else didn't make the book that you talked to? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, I guess it would be rude to name them, but... Right. Well, <laughs> and that's something I'm dealing with right now because I'm the sort of person who avoids confrontation like the plague. But I do need to tell some people, you know what, I'm so sorry for whatever reason, we just couldn't, just couldn't include it. Right. You know, it's kind of like you shoot a scene for a movie, and then your scene gets cut, and it's like, what? Yeah, that's good. Good analogy. Yeah. So, I'm thinking about that, actually. <laughs> so, much like the music industry, you, you essentially got signed for an album. Yeah. All right. Do you have uh, two or three albums options, or...? <laughs> uh, you mean projects I'm thinking about doing? Uh, that the, your publisher, you know, are they going to say, if this, you know, if this sells well... We'll get back in bed for another or I mean that's that that's certainly an option I don't think we've explicitly discussed that okay. but yes I mean like I'm thinking of new projects right now one thing I think would be interesting sort of do it on the movie side the craziest film productions of all time yeah, yeah. Dennis Hopper's the last movie which was made on mountains of cocaine and Jack Daniels <laughs> you know things like that yeah so uh, yeah I mean uh, basically it's just getting this sucker out um, it's been about a solid year of my life, but uh, I'm really happy with it. I think it's really fun. And then uh, PR strategy. Do you have, have you, have you guys been, have a powwow and this is the way we're going to roll it out and we're going to try to get you on Rockonomics if, you know, God willing, they'll have you. And, right. Yeah. Oh, no, I was beating, we were beating down your door and <laughs> come back on, as you know. Yeah, there's an in-house uh, publicist that we're about to really get into bed together. Um, April is going to be pretty much when we start doing the nitty gritty um, blasts and getting people, you know, advanced copies and uh, things like that. But yeah, I've got a couple things already lined up. <clears throat> John Worcester from super chunk and the best show. He's going to do a reading in store reading oh, that's cool. in North Carolina. Oh, great. So then, yeah, I think we're going to hit LA, Chicago, uh, Portland for in stores. Um, hopefully get some of the artists to come out and read. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. That's very cool. I know. Very exciting. Thanks. Well, let's uh, let's get into the nitty gritty. I know uh, we brought a little bit uh, an excerpt. I brought a whole chapter. I brought two whole chapters. Perfect, perfect. Um, what, what's did you bring? Like, what do you feel is the best or the juiciest? Or how did you how did you go about selecting? <clears throat> well, uh, so Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction, 
Jane's Addiction, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, he was someone that I had no personal background with. We, right. had, we had never talked. And I had heard that he could be a little difficult. And I was, frankly, kind of excited when they responded with, Dave's totally into this. Let's and do was it. that through his PR or publicist? Yeah, that was through his publicist. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he came in and he was just perfect. 20 minutes, boom, boom. Sharing stuff that... I he, I don't think he's ever publicly shared, and he's written his own memoir. So I I never asked him. I said I Googled the story I'm about to share with you. Right. Nothing <laughs> comes up. I think maybe a mention he might have mentioned this incident, but certainly not in the detail. Yeah. After you read it, everyone's got to go to Google and figure out what keywords you're going to use to search. Fiona <laughs> Apple, heroin, syringe, K Rock, syringe right. art. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, give us a little a taste. Okay. Okay, so this is Chapter 6. Um, so here's my intro. Before becoming a reality TV gadfly, Dave Navarro was alternative excess personified. From his early years as guitarist in Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros, through a short stint in Red Hot Chili Peppers, Navarro was the elegantly wasted, darkly sexual pinup for the Doom generation with a penchant for heroin syringe art. Nice. Okay, uh, now here's Dave. You'll have to forgive me because my memory of the drug days is a little blurry. Back in 1997, Jane's Addiction was on tour and we were playing the K-Rock Almost Acoustic Christmas Show. It was at the Universal Amphitheater and it was the height of my drug addiction. I was shooting up heroin and cocaine on a daily basis. I've done tons of tours completely sober since, but back then I was really, really deep in it. That entire tour, I was pretty out of my mind. I was somehow... Able to not fall down on stage, but before or after, or sometimes during, I was shooting. I was legitimately the member who couldn't be found. Nobody knew where I was. I would shoot a ton of coke, then do the heroin to come down. Or I would speedball, so I had an option. I could be really up or down. The thing about shooting cocaine is there's a big rush, and then it wears off relatively quickly, so you end up shooting a lot. With the speedball, one shot will get you through a couple hours easily. There were many times during the 1997 tour where I had five or six syringes set up and ready to go off the side of the stage. In between songs, I would reapply. It was no secret to the band members, but I don't think the audience was aware. I'd wait for Perry Farrell to talk to the audience or or a change in the production to duck behind the guitar tech and gear station to fix. I'd only get a few minutes, and I hate to say it, but I got really good at doing it quickly. Anyway, back to the almost acoustic... Christmas show. For shows like that, there's a number of different artists playing, which is usually somewhere around 10 bands. Fiona Apple was playing, and she was breaking as a huge act. It was the height of Fiona mania. I was a fan, and I also had this uh, distant crush on her. I had never met her, but I was really psyched to be playing the same bill with her. I got to the venue early for soundcheck, and with multiple bands on the bill, you soundcheck and then wait around all day. What's a junkie going to do all day long but shoot coke and heroin? The process of shooting up involves inserting the needle into the vein and pulling back a little bit on the plunger to make sure you've hit the vein. A little blood rushes into the syringe, and then you know you're good. If you miss the vein, you're going to run into problems and really injure yourself. I developed a system where I would extract blood without anything in the syringe. I'd spike the vein and pull out a syringe full of blood, which led to loads of fun over the years. In the midst of my insanity, I thought it would be a very romantic gesture to go into Fiona Apple's dressing room and write a message on her wall in my own blood. 
In my deranged head, I viewed it as sending her a message with the blood that pumps through my heart to her. It was my lifeblood that I was symbolically, symbolically sharing. I thought we would relate on multiple levels because we're both passionate musicians and artists. In my head, it was a grand, romantic statement that she would find very touching. <clears throat> she hadn't arrived at the venue yet, so I snuck in her dressing room and began to extract blood out of my arm. With a syringe, you can aim it and basically paint with it. You can write words, and it was a technique that I had perfected over the years. There was no innuendo or poetry in the message I wrote her. It just read, Dear Fiona, I hope you have a great time tonight. Love, Dave. That was it. It wasn't too over the top. In my co-gaddled brain, it was a very subtle, kind, romantic gesture. I saw us riding off into the sunset, with this gesture being the basis for our romance. As it turned out, the management and staff of the Universal Amphitheater didn't see it that way. <clears throat> the next thing I know, my manager comes in the dressing room, asking, Did you go into Fiona Apple's dressing room? I said, Yeah! I was proud of it. I continued... Of course I did. I left her a little message wishing her luck on the gig. I tried explaining that there was no better way to express my sincerity to her than with the blood that runs through my veins. About five minutes later, I was in a meeting with staff and management. I'm not sure if her management was involved or if she had even seen the message, because an hour later, a team of crime scene cleanup people in hazmat suits began disinfecting her room. Instead of thinking that I was in some kind of trouble or that I had made a huge mistake... I was gutted that my loving message had been evaporated from the planet. In my drugged-out state, I couldn't comprehend that a message written in syringe blood from someone she had never met might have been frightening. Had someone come into my dressing room and written a message in blood to me, I would have thought it was incredible. That's how sick I was. <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> I mean, really, holy shit. I mean, yeah. when you hear about rock cliches, I mean, it's, it's kind of scary, too, that he was shooting up mid-concert three or four times. I know. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. I can't now, imagine. my follow-up questions are, did you ever reach out to Fiona's camp? <laughs> like, like, reaction? <laughs> well, I think he... Well, I cut the story a little bit short, and I think he said that they um, saw each other or they were sitting in uh, adjacent tables in a restaurant. And I, I, like I, years later? Or? Yeah, years later. And I think she just avoided eye contact, and oh. he didn't say anything. But the funny thing is, I just saw Fiona Apple just announced that she's working on new yeah, music. Yeah, me too. So maybe we can do a, oh, a tie-in. You, you gotta, you gotta get some sort of reaction. <laughs> I have a feeling she wouldn't uh, be too find it very amusing. Uh, true. It's funny. The other thing too, I think back to Dave. It's number one. You made it sound like he knew exactly, when he got the pitch for your book, he was like, holy shit, I know exactly which story to tell. It's just so funny that... It was it was kind of like that. I mean, there was no prep. Well, I sent him, you know, kind of what the book was about, yeah, yeah. but there was no, what do you want me to talk about? What do you want me to share? He came yeah. gunning in with God, it. It's so funny. And then <laughs> my last reaction was, it seemed like a long note. And I wonder, yeah, I, know. I wonder, I wonder if it's the druggy mind. If we could see a picture of that note, it's probably just fucking splattered. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But in his mind, it's perfectly, you know, cursive, cursive. Right. Because I figured it'd be dripping. <laughs> so it would look like a horror film. Like, like I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Well, that, I mean, if that's the antithesis of the book, this book is fucking going to be awesome. That's not even the craziest. That's so funny. What would you... I don't want. Let's not give too much away. But what is the crazy? What's who? Who gave you the craziest story? Al Jorgensen from Ministry. Okay, that comes as no surprise because he's a. Does that is it drug related? Also? Oh yeah. <laughs> who gave you the most surprising? That's a good question. I mean, Dave obviously totally blew me away that he was so transparent and right. honest with that one. Um, 
But even as we go through the list, like I, I did mention, I, I love the fact that Debbie Gibson's there. Not that hers was was crazy, but yeah. you had such a great cross section of artists. You know, did right. some of them surprise you? Be like, holy shit, this guy you know has a lot more mojo than I thought. Or well, I, yeah, I thought you know. Who, well, here's one that I did find uh, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. Yeah, he was very funny. Oh, I'm bad. Very dryly hilarious, I thought. <laughs> you know, and that was kind of a fun surprise. Um, Debbie was cool. Like, in my intro, I said she was kind of punk rock. She was sneaking into these 21 and over clubs in L.A. Um, when she was only 16. Oh, right. Wow. You know, like, you know, venues that were, you know, drag queens and L.A.'s seedy underbelly. And she's this 16-year-old doing her pop thing. Yeah, her mall tour. Yeah, right. Oh, that was actually Tiffany. She never did the mall. Oh, thing. she didn't do the mall. No, and I made that same mistake, and she corrected me. That's funny. She's coming through town. I think this summer I'll have to <coughs> give me give me her contact info. I'll see if she'll talk. Yeah. Dynamics. Um. Well, you know, some of um, Soul Asylum were a lot crazier than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, Who did you talk to, Dave Perner? Or? Yeah, Dave. Um, I knew they they kind of had the punk rock replacements. They shared that same sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, no, his he has some wild stories. Um, Who was on your list that you could not get, or I guess even maybe said yes, but you could not nail down? Or <laughs> oh man, that one's endless. <laughs> and, I, and I mentioned in the book, um, I don't have a strong hip hop background. I just haven't interviewed a lot of hip hop artists, mm-hmm. um, so that was a real bummer. I did RZA from Wu Tang back in the day, um, but yeah, no, I, I just didn't have those connections and. That was that was a bummer um, because I reached out to everybody. Right. I mean, the big Dre, Eminem, Chance the Rapper, <clears throat> um, and it just it just didn't happen for whatever reasons. Um, I did, you know I did get a few uh, Wyclef Jean, Talib Kweli. Um, so yeah, that's one thing that I really, um, if I do this again, yeah, yeah, would I was focus more. Say that. It'd be interesting. Now that it's out there, I bet you get a lot of people that are like, oh, I'd love to get, I'd love to be a part of that. Yeah, and, you know, maybe if I can show that, hey, this did, you know, fairly well, mm-hmm. I'll get some of those people. Another thing with women, um, for whatever reason, just a lot of them didn't work out. And I pitched, I ran out of ideas, honestly. Right. I saw um, you on Facebook sometimes, you reached out. and Yeah. It's funny to look at, like, all these names you pitched in. I was like, are these are all, all, like, publicists and, <laughs> you know... Who who is your your face? A lot of your Facebook friends are are some publicists or just insiders or sure yeah. Um, so that was interesting to see, and I know I threw a couple out there, but uh, yeah, it was it was fun to follow along, and I could see you latch onto a couple and pursue it, and it's, <laughs> you know, again, it's kind of the inside of the machinery. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I don't really have any big like I thought Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips. I've interviewed him like four times. Right. Wayne, oh, Wayne wouldn't do it. Did you get anyone from the replacements? Did you get Tommy Simpson? No, he just did. Josh Priest. Okay. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. I was calling calling him a, re- a, pla- a replacement. <laughs> well, and, and, he's, and, yeah, he's a replacement. Replacement. <laughs> As you know, I'm a huge Josh Priest fan. And yeah. You brought. You've got a little bit of uh, his story too, right? You want to? Yeah, I was going to read um, the time that they did Saturday Night Live. That, that's a good one because I think there's video of that we can. Uh, yeah. We okay. Share this that this one's pretty short. <clears throat> and for those of you who don't know, Josh Freeze is, uh, I think he, I think it might be on his social channels, he's drummer to the stars, he's been, he's a session drummer that's played with pretty much everyone, and he's toured with Nine Inch Nails, and Perfect Circle, and Sting, and 
Devo. Devo. Okay. It's no secret. Okay, so this is Josh. Uh, it's no secret that the, that the replacements had a permanent Saturday Night Live ban after they did the show in 1986. And that was uh, because Bob Stinson, I think, yelled fuck or said fuck on air. <laughs> And he also did a uh, backward somersault, and he wasn't wearing a dress, and I don't think he was wearing underwear. <laughs> so, yes, Lauren Michaels permanently banned the replacements. <clears throat> the funny thing was that SNL then booked Paul Westerberg in 1993. Uh, Paul was doing his first solo record. Um, I remember Lauren Michaels not realizing that it was Paul Westerberg from the replacements until right after the show was done, and then he was furious. We came in the day before the show to do a big, long rehearsal with the horn section, we were there all day, and the word was, everybody, don't talk too loud backstage about the fact that Paul was in the replacements. Don't mention the R word. Lawrence still wanted his head on a stick. Basically, everyone backstage knew who Paul was, obviously, so it was really fun with all of us playing dumb and mischievous for the day. We got back the following day for another rehearsal, and there's a full run-through of the show in front of an audience around 8 p.m., We'd been there for fucking two straight days at that point, and Paul was getting antsy. We did Knockin' on Mine as our first song, which went fine. I think it was kind of nerve-wracking, even for Paul, because it's live, obviously, but it's also SNL. It's not exactly the club down the street. Can't Hardly Wait was our second song, and, we were, and as we were walking to the stage, Paul whispered to me, during one of the breaks, just yell something. He didn't tell me what to yell or why the drummer would be yelling some random thing on live TV. Can't hardly wait his two breaks in the song, um, so that's what he means. I think he just thought it would be funny or might piss off Lorne Michaels. Again, I'm a 22-year-old kid, so no pressure, right? I literally had no time to think up something that would be funny to yell as we, as we launched right into the song. It came to the first break in the song, and I choked. I didn't yell anything. To put this in perspective, this was a couple years before Burt Reynolds had his big resurgence in Boogie Nights. He was basically off the grid in terms of popularity in 1993. It was coming to the second break, and I'm thinking about Burt Reynolds. I was also thinking about Taco Bell's seven-layer burrito, which had just come out around that time. I ended up yelling, Burt Reynolds, at the top of my lungs. I wasn't mic'd, so if you were in the room, you definitely heard it, because I yelled. But if you were just watching TV that night... You would have needed to hit rewind thinking, what the fuck did somebody just yell that made Westerberg crack up? The other funny thing was that Charlton Heston was hosting that night, and during rehearsals he kept screwing up Paul's last name. <clears throat> Poor Heston was so old and out of it at the time, and I have no idea what he would have been promoting in 1993. He was really struggling to remember Paul's last name, and it wasn't like he was being a jerk. He was just old, and we kind of felt bad for him. At the very end of the show, when everyone's on stage and the host thanks everyone, Paul was standing next to Heston. The way I remember it, Heston forgot the name again and didn't even say, thanks to Paul Westerberg. I remember Heston pausing to say something to Paul, but he blanks and just stares at Paul like, there's no fucking way I'm going to be able to remember your name again. Then he waved to the crowd and sticks his hand out to Paul, who coughs into his own hand right before they shake. If you ask Darren Hill, Paul's manager... Paul spit in his own hand before the shake, masking it with the cough. God damn, how funny. <laughs> it's so funny, don't they have, I, I, I don't know, I was going to say, don't they have cue cards? <laughs> I can't see that. Well, I think he uh, had someone saying, Paul Westerfield. <laughs> maybe he couldn't read it. You know, that's even better for the legend, though. God, mm -hmm. funny. God. Well, again, the book comes out July 20th. 
Um, Via Simon many, and Schuster. How many people do you have on it? Uh, 61. Holy shit. That's so funny. I counted that's on the cover you list 27 and it says, and many more. I'm like, yep. what, like five more? Holy oh, shit. no. It's, it's stacked. I mean, there were a lot that we just chose not to use for whatever reason. Right. Um, how long is the book? How many pages? I think it's right around 288 right now. Any pictures? Any no. pictures for us graphic designers? I know, and that was a bummer because I really wanted to do pictures, but so many of these stories ended up being kind of early 90s before digital <laughs> before photos. cell phones. Like, for instance, uh, Sean from White Zombie, I did a chapter with her, and her story was about Dimebag Daryl pranking her all the time because they, White Zombie toured with Victoria. Pantera. So she sent me some lovely pictures of the two of them, which... I don't know. I feel bad. Just we can't use. Yeah, that stinks. Um, yeah. Well, maybe your 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 social strategy. Gigi Allen's brother Merle. Uh, I thought he he was. <laughs> I, so, you don't want any pictures from that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was trying to charge me, and I said, eh, "I think we're good." <laughs> so I'll read off a couple of names. We have Jane's Addiction, Lincoln Park, Devo, The Police, Alice Cooper, Garbage, Semi Hagar, Ween, White Zombie. Uh, you heard Soul Asylum, Moby, Guided by Voices. Lita Ford, Jethro Tull, as you mentioned, Zach Wilde, as you mentioned, MC5, Peter Frampton. It's good when Peter Frampton, he's going on his, uh, I know. his last tour. Right. The Go-Go's, who did you talk to from the Go-Go's? Jane Weedland. I heard they were they were wild in their day. They were part of the whole L.A. punk scene back, yeah. back with the germs and all that, right? Yes, they were They were real crazy. But the interesting thing about that was they had basically recorded their stuff on VHS, um, like really late night bad girl oh, right, right. behavior. Some of that came out, didn't it? Yes. So I, you know, I was thought that, was that part of the story? Well, no, because I kind of thought, well, we we sort of know that. that. Yeah. So Jane gave me a really funny one about weird Japanese fetishes and her coming down with Meniere's disease in Japan. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> it's it's what Ryan Adams claims he had. Oh, it's like the uh, uh, I don't know if vertigo. It, it's, uh, yes, it's like vertigo. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Stooges. Yeah, I did uh, James Williamson. Okay, that's got to be pretty wild, too. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I was going to ask you the many more. Who, who, who else uh, who else do you have that you can uh, dangle in front of our listeners? Oh, I wish I had this in front of me, because <laughs> uh, my whole life has been doing this for the last year. <laughs> that's that's The draw is you gotta you got to Google it, research it. It's available for pre-order on yes. Amazon and... Is it Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble, all your local... Local. There's no... There is no local anymore, unfortunately. I know, right? All your uh, go-to uh, booksellers. Um, and as I said, unfortunately, we've done the final five before because you've been on the show. So this is not only my first repeat guest, but my first show without the final five. But regardless, Drew, best of luck with that book. I'm looking forward to it. I know most of my listeners are probably looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, come back again. Come back again when the second book's on its way or the movie book's on its way. Thanks, Dale. And uh, we'll do it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Drew Fortune. Drew's book, No Encore, Musicians Reveal Their Weirdest, Wildest, Most Embarrassing Gigs, is available now for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and Books A Million, among others, I'm sure. And it's in stores July 16th. You can follow Drew on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And per usual, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you go to iTunes and leave us a review, we'll be your new best friend. 
We'll be back next week with an all-new episode featuring an individual who's worked behind the scenes as a tour manager, band manager, and production manager, so please come join us for that. All right, episode 53 is now only to be spoken of in past tense. Good night, Cleveland. Good night, Cleveland.